So I am Compliance Week's data and research journalist, which means I'm the dedicated case study writer. And in between working on those long-term projects, I'm also CW's book review writer. I moderate at some of our events. I'm the survey reporter and an occasional writer of columns. And This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you greetings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. Today, we begin a two-part series with Allie McDevitt from Compliance Week on her recent case study on ransomware. Greetings and Felicitation is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I have with me Allie McDevitt. Allie is with Compliance Week, and she has written a great uh, series that we are now seeing from Compliance Week, but this series focuses on a ransomware case study. So, Allie, uh, first of all, welcome. I think it's the first time I've interviewed you one on one. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I know we talked, you know, when the Carnival case study came out and Dave before joined us. But yeah, this is our first one-on-one. So that's exciting. Could you tell the audience your current role at Compliance Week? So I am Compliance Week's data and research journalist, which means I'm the dedicated case study writer. And in between working on those long-term projects, I'm also CW's book review writer, I moderate at some of our events. I'm the survey reporter and an occasional writer of columns and other miscellaneous articles. The uh, yeah, and you mentioned the Carnival case study. Uh, that was great. We've had one on whistleblowers, and now we have one on ransomware. So why did you uh, choose this subject matter for such a deep dive? So this is a really great question, and it's a really topical question right now, too. So ransomware has exploded in recent years. I'm sure you know that as well as anybody. It's an issue that affects every industry, every size company, whether you're a major corporation or a mom and pop shop. And the scariest thing about ransomware is that you can spend a ton of time, money and resources strengthening your defenses and improving your cyber hygiene. And you can still be a target because there's no surefire way to avoid a cyber attack. So that's why it's pretty scary. Um, The Department of Homeland Security released a report in July of 2021 that stated that $350 million was paid to malicious cyber actors in 2020, which was more than a 300% increase from the prior year. And I'm willing to bet that when this year's report comes out this summer, it will be just as staggering, if not more so. And there's two other things I wanted to mention. One is that the risk landscape has grown with the emergence of ransomware as a service, which allows even the most tech illiterate people to purchase hacking tools and deploy them. So an affiliate who buys these tools does not need to know a line of code. So the barrier to entry to become a cyber criminal is now pretty low. And then finally, I wanted to mention that you know, Russia has always been, or for a long time now, has been a leading source of cybercrime, even before its attack on Ukraine. But now, with the U.S. ramping up its sanctions against Russia, companies should prepare for retaliation against the U.S. in the form of cybercrime. 
So, Ali, could you tell us about the research you did for this uh, particular case study? Uh, I, I can't imagine the number of people you interviewed, but the breadth and scope of who you talked to and what you read to prepare for this, I thought was truly stunning. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Who did you interview or rather how many and how long was your research process? I formerly interviewed a dozen individuals and I specifically sought out cyber professionals who could speak to the different vantage points of a ransomware attack. So for example, a line level employee at a real company who experienced an attack, a hacker, members of the FBI, someone from the DOJ, and then many others. So those were the the 12 different vantage points that I really wanted to have covered here to provide a 360 degree view of the attack. But then I, I also drew from other resources from federal agencies like CISA, NIST, the FBI, uh, the U.S. Department of Treasury, and more. And then I also cited a few independent research reports as well. And I began researching in earnest back in July of 2021, and that research lasted five months. Okay, so now we get to my favorite question that I love to ask writers, which is your writing process or your writing style. Do you lock yourself in a room with uh, just a, all the coffee you can buy and, you know, donuts for sugar? Uh, do you sit down and write early in the morning or late in the afternoon? What's your <laughs> writing style for a project this large? This is always my favorite question, too. As a writer, I love to hear how other writers do it. For this style of writing, I don't have to lock myself in a room. If we were talking about fiction writing, that might be different. But um, in this case, I, I don't have to do that because I can lean on the research that I, that I find. Um, but I will say that, truthfully, when I first started out on this journey, I envisioned writing a case study that was going to be similar in format to my prior two case studies, which were Carnival and Volkswagen. And what I mean is that I would have one company as the centerpiece of the study, and then I would allow the best practices and the lessons learned to bloom from that one organization's experience. But what I quickly learned is that this was going to be different. At the outset, I reached out to more than 50 companies who I knew had experienced a ransomware attack in the last five years. And out of that 50-odd companies, only one company came back to me and said that they would be interested in going on the record about it. And then even then, they ultimately backed out. So partly by necessity, I had to pivot the format. But I was ready for a new challenge anyway. And like you, I'm a writer. I love storytelling. And I wanted to try something that had a different approach. So my solution was to create my own fictional company, sketch out characters to play certain key roles on the cyber incident response team, and then allow the interviews that I had from the real professionals to inform the plausibility of the story and also to guide the reader in evaluating what my fictitious company did right and wrong along the way after that initial breach. So uh, it came together in stages. I began writing in the fall, September. And what I would do is I would write a chapter. I would stop. I would take stock of any gaps in the story, any um, holes that needed to be filled. And then I would seek out another interviewee in that particular specialty to help me fill in that hole. And then sometimes that would necessitate some rewriting of the story that happened a couple times. Um, but it all worked out well in the end. 
And then I think you also asked me whether it was a collaborative process with my editor. And, and that was with editor-in-chief Kyle Brasser. He uh, mainly saved his feedback for after I had a cohesive beginning, middle, and an end. And that chiefly took place in December. But we were lucky to get a few fresh eyes on it from other members of the editorial department and a few outside subject matter experts, too. So in terms of uh, writing, for better or worse, I sit down and I write it, and it's almost ready to go. Some light editing. Uh, Is that your style, or are you much more cut and paste, the old school, uh, you know, you've got your three by five cards with notes and quotes that you incorporate into it. You've got lots of dialogue, thoughts, and thought processes in this article. As you said, it's a fictional company, so I almost say it's sort of uh, new journalism, uh, but it's based on the experiences of a lot of people. How does that work for you? I'm not so formal as to use post-it notes or index cards or anything like that. What I will do is review the research that I've gathered that I know will pertain to a particular section of the story. And I'll read it over a couple times, make sure that it's fresh at the top of my mind. And then I will shut out every other window on my computer and start writing the fiction. Otherwise, that's that's the thing about fiction. I feel like it's not going to happen unless I cut off all the distractions. You know, that's probably the best advice I've ever heard. Because I'm the worst. I'm like, oh, let me do something else. Well, let me do something else. Uh, let me go get a cup of coffee. No, let me go outside. Uh, let me go ask my wife something. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I, sp- I speak from experience there, too. <laughs> well, let's turn to uh, the case study itself. And I was wanted to go maybe go through uh, each chapter because you've broken it down by chapters with parts and uh, hit a couple of the highlights or at least some from, from me. Uh, that I took away. And it starts, of course, with uh, the ransomware attack itself. And uh, I have to say, and I'll, and I'll kind of tie this together at the end, I wasn't quite sure about the character Betty. And, um, but let's start with Betty's mistake. How common was Betty's mistake? What was Betty's mistake? And then uh, did she compound her mistake by not speaking up initially? And how did that play into kind of the rest, or at least start the rest of the story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you pretty much nailed it on the head. She made a series of mistakes. They started pretty small and then they compounded and made things colossally worse for the company. So yeah, I'm going to be curious to know after I answer your questions, why you're not so sure about her. I wanted to write Betsy as someone that any reader could relate to, who's not the most tech savvy person out there who maybe hasn't had a a fresh cyber training program given to them in a little bit. The first mistake that she makes, I think, is to just bury her head in the sand. After she realizes that something is probably afoot, she just hopes it's going to go away. And I think that that is a really common reaction, you know, especially if you are not adequately educated in cyber attacks generally. You might recall one of the details was that she only vaguely recalled her training. And so she lacked that immediate reflex of what exactly am I supposed to do in this situation? Do I unplug my computer? Do I not touch my computer? And as I was writing this, I would pose this dilemma to other people. And I thought that was a great gauge on, you know, 
the level of cyber incident response readiness and a person has, because the answers were all over the map. You know, I remember one person saying, well, I wouldn't want to turn off the computer because then I would be afraid it wouldn't turn back on. There were a lot of answers along those lines. And when you read the experts in the report, they will tell you it is a complicated answer, actually, but it's worth knowing as an employee what you are supposed to do in that moment. You asked if it's if what she was guilty of is common. I wanted to mention that phishing and spear phishing are probably the most prominent kinds of attack vectors out there because they are so successful. Capitalizing on human error, it has proven to be like one of the most successful ways to infiltrate a company. Um, have you ever clicked on a bad link before? Because I have. I'm uh, either the bad link Nazi or hyper vigilant, so uh, almost never. Yeah, I mean, I can think back, you know, 10, 12 years ago, clicking on a bad link. And luckily, I never had the repercussions that this Betsy character had. Um, but it happens. I mean, you catch someone at, at a, a weak moment, it can happen. So I wanted a character who would represent the everyday person being duped, falling for a very easy mistake. So can you tell me why you're not sure about her? You know, I'm going to save that to the end for lessons learned. <laughs> okay. The next chapter, or rather part, because it's part two of chapter one, you move to the corporation. And we have the corporate CEO who's working out in the gym, uh, obviously post-COVID, and um, gets a call. <laughs> and really the thing that struck me about part two, Allie, was that, number one, they had hardened their defenses. They had gone through uh, another issue or similar issue a few years ago, so they had put in the the physical and IT defenses, um, and of course they were still hacked. But the really the part that uh, the message you drove home for me was they were prepared when the attack came, and they knew what to do. It wasn't simply they had a written policy and procedure. They'd obviously practiced it or at least gone over it. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about the role of the critical incident response team, uh, those uh I don't want to say soft defenses, but the processes they had in place to respond when the attack occurred. When I first started writing it, I did not create that backstory for the company that they had had this prior attack. And then that was suggested to me firstly by Kyle Brasser, the editor in chief. And then secondly, by a CISO who I interviewed um, said, if, if you really want this company to be realistic, because realistically a company is not going to be that well prepared unless they've experienced something before. So it's interesting that you drew that out because that was something that I had to go back and, and add in later. But getting to the main question, you um, brought up the CERT, so the Cyber Incident Response Team, and then I think you also mentioned the MSSP, which was something I knew nothing about prior to my research. The MSSP is a managed security service provider. It's a third party. Uh, so basically, it's an IT service business that provides outsourced monitoring and management of security devices and systems for a company. And what I learned from speaking with this CISO is that a company of this fictitious company's size of roughly 600 employees, that would be their first line of defense. And it's an outside third party. 
The CERT, the Cyber Incident Response Team, is primarily an internal team of experts. And they are going to be responsible for coordinating and supporting the response to a cyber incident internally. So it's going to include the C-suite, especially the CEO, because obviously that person is, makes the ultimate call of whether to pay a ransom. Um, the CISO, who is running the security team, general counsel, you might have head of communications in there. So it's a, typically an internal team, but you might have some external members involved. Um, so like contacts from the FBI or possibly a digital forensics examiner from um, a contracted outside expert, cyber incident response firm. Uh, you might even have a ransomware negotiator in the room with you. And yeah, I mean, I think probably one of the biggest takeaways of the whole case study is that preparation is everything. It's not going to give you a hundred percent guarantee that you're that you're not that you're ever not targeted, but it really is critical because cyber criminals are really banking on the victims being scared frantic and rash in their decision-making so that they can leverage a maximum payout. Uh, And I think it was in this part where you introduced uh, some psychological aspects. And I was really intrigued by that. I thought that was a great addition. Uh, We're going to talk about it a little bit more um, when we talk about who are the hackers, but you talked about the psychology of the demands, and you also talked about the psychology of the response. And this is where the MSSP, I thought, was so critical, having a, you know, a independent third party who's not emotionally involved, sort of like having a lawyer, this is their job, this is what they do, uh, whether it's a hostage negotiator, whether it's a ransomware attack negotiator, uh, but they will come in and handle the negotiations and they can actually use language to try to draw out a little more information from the hacker and perhaps uh, begin to position for a true negotiation uh, of a settlement. But I was wondering, I was re- so I was really intrigued by that. And of course, the psychology used by the hackers in terms of you, you mentioned the fear, but also you talked about the way they would phrase their demands uh, uh, back and forth. I was wondering if you could say a few words about kind of this psychological or, or uh, behavioral aspect that uh, you reported as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a really interesting aspect of the research to me, too. So I looked at a report that was prepared by a professor. Uh, I think he's a cyber psychologist, which is like a budding field. And his name is Lee Hadlington. I read his report that he did for another company where he looked at about 75 different splash screens, real splash screens from ransomware attacks. And he sort of uh, aggregated any commonalities between them. And there were some manipulation tactics at play because, as I was saying earlier, um, you know, one of the most effective ways to get what you want is to play on the fact that you're dealing with humans. So, you know, uh, he talked about scarcity being something that pressures someone to make decisions. So scarcity of time. So as soon as you click on that splash screen link, it sets the timer. Boom, you have 72 hours to make this payment. When people know they're on, their, uh, on a timer, their IQ drops. Um, their decision-making ability drops too. So there's that. One detail that I thought was really interesting was uh, likeness. So there's actually a 
bit of an effort into getting the victim to like the, the attacker where they will, you know, they'll put up like a FAQ section, like you can come visit us, customer service sections, just to ensure that your payment is received by us. Um, and what that does is create this sense that the attackers are established, that they, maybe they have this team in place and that they're comfortably in control. So I just thought that was really fascinating. I have uh, had a friend who was managing uh, on a management committee at a law firm who was hacked. And he said they were given uh, a buffet of potential payments um, all the way from, you know, top shelf pay and will decrypt everything down to various other levels. Uh, the bottom level being, we'll give you the key and the rest is up to you. And, and uh, which he referred to as a buffet menu. And in, in after, uh, I was kind of flabbergasted by that. But after reading your piece, it struck me it was the hackers were giving the law firm a sense of control and it made them feel a little more empowered. They ended up paying uh, something. I'm not quite sure what they paid, but um, that seems to fit directly into this uh, psychological war that's going on as well. Yeah, that's really funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it is funny because it also implies that that top tier buffet menu item is the maximum of what the attackers have on you. And that's also another aspect of the manipulation where they are going to bluff or embellish what they have. They want you to think that they have the keys to your kingdom. Basically I, I interviewed a ransomware negotiator who does this for a living. And he said, you know, that's what they're banking on. They want someone to think that they have everything that the alleged impact on the business is going to be, you know, as bad as it could possibly get. When in reality, that's often, often not the case. It's just a big bluff. So in that law firm's example, I'd be curious to know, you know, was it really just one of those lower tiers that they actually had taken? Um, but they're just hoping that the company will just overshoot and pay more. This is Tom Fox. That concludes part one of our special two-part podcast series with Allie McDevitt from Compliance Week on her case study on a ransomware attack. We're going to link to it in the show notes, so I hope you'll check it out. I also hope you will check out part two of this podcast series, which drops on Thursday, March 24th. Greetings and Felicitations is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.